Hi, this is Lar Park Lincoln, and welcome to Hollywood and Beyond. Hello, this is Stephen Brittingham. Welcome to Remembering Michael Landon, Part 2, with Lar Park Lincoln and Robert David Hall, each having worked with Michael on an episode of Highway to Heaven, the NBC television show that aired from 1984 to 1989, featuring a probationary angel portrayed by Michael Landon who was sent back to Earth to help those in need by teaming up with an ex-cop portrayed by Victor French. My special guest today, Lar Park Lincoln and Robert David Hall, will be sharing their personal memories of working with Michael. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the show. Welcome to a Hollywood and Beyond special presentation. Up first is Lar Park Lincoln. The episode is In with the In Crowd from Season 4 of Highway to Heaven. Jonathan and Mark go to a high school to track down who is selling drugs that ultimately killed a student. You stop pulling on yourself, you look fine. Well, I don't feel fine. Some people were not meant to wear ties. You're a police officer talking to high school kid. You should look respectable. Maybe if you could find a tie in a different color, something a little more subdued. I like this color. I'm afraid of that. And a policewoman named Denise Kelly, portrayed by my guest, Lar Park Lincoln, goes undercover to assist Jonathan and Mark. What a day. I can't believe I ever actually took algebra. <laughs> well, I've been invited to a party tomorrow night. It's at Ray Russo's. He's the leader of the so-called in crowd. He's also the one that I think sold Rhonda Blake the garbage that killed her. Uh, you gotta be careful, Denise. We need proof before we start making arrests. This is my third high school in the past seven months. I know what I'm doing. Besides, Russo and his gang think they're too smart to get caught. Just the same, I think you ought to wear a wire tomorrow night. If you get in trouble, we're protected. Yeah, I've got no problem with that. I think I found the perfect cover. I met a boy in the student cafeteria today, Mike Parker. He's a football player. You think he's involved in dealing drugs? No. Mike's too busy chasing trophies and girls to waste time with drugs. I think you ought to involve him. Like I said, he's the perfect cover. You worry about your job and I'll worry about mine. I gotta run. I got homework. After befriending a smitten student to get closer to the drug dealer, her identity is exposed and has been falsely accused of inappropriate behavior during her investigation. All right, what's going on? I'm afraid that certain students have discovered Miss Kelly's identity. 
then under the circumstances, the faculty and I think that it's better Denise leave school. Then how'd they find out? It was my students who uncovered Kelly. Tony Brandt, Ray Russo, and Billy Bates came to me this morning. They said that she had been asking about drugs, wanting to know where she could score some coke. The good stuff. They said she sounded like a narc. That's when I went to Eastwood. When I told him that she had been seen with Mike Parker, kissing him, touching him, pretending to be his girlfriend... That's a lie! I had no choice but to clear the air. And Mike Parker's mother is on her way down right now. Oh, Mr. Eastwood, don't you think it would have been a little better to talk to Denise before starting to call faculty parent meetings? Mr. Eastwood? Oh, Mrs. Parker, I'm glad you could come down on such short notice. Mm -hmm. Is this the policewoman who was touching my son? The only time she touched your son was to push him away, Mrs. Parker. Who are you? My name's Jonathan Smith. I've been Officer Kelly's backup here at Woodbury. Oh. So you're a cop, too? And you expect me to believe you? Would you mind my asking you your age? Not at all. I'm 21. My son is still a minor. And there are laws to protect him against people like you. I won't dignify that remark with a reply. Well, maybe you will when I get you in court. I know your type, young lady. You were the kind of girl that could never get a boy like Michael, a popular boy, when you were in school. But now that you're a little older and you have a little more experience... All right, wait a minute, Miss Parker. I think you've said enough. Why don't we wait till we hear all the facts? Now, Mike, uh, as you know, some very serious allegations have been made concerning Officer Kelly's conduct here at Woodbury. Now, Mike, you know the truth, so just tell them. I thought she liked me, but she was just using me. I yes, but did she make a pass at you? Did she kiss you or let you kiss her? Yeah, plenty of times. She couldn't keep her hands off me. He's lying! Mark, did you bring the tape? Listen, Denise. What tape? I was wired the night I went to Ray Russo's party, and that tape will prove that I told your son to buzz off. What happened to the tape? I, uh... I killed it. I thought the stakeout was off. Mark, who unwisely stopped recording the wire worn by Leslie during a seemingly innocent moment, attempts to make it up to her by meeting up with the drug dealer, claiming he deliberately stopped the wire recording and once in on the action. Hey, come on. What is this? All right, pal, you don't want to deal? Forget it. Ray! You nuts, he's a cop! What do we have here? He's wearing a wire. Looks like Officer Gordon here was playing Lone Ranger. After receiving a potentially fatal dose by the drug dealer, Mark fights for his life in a coma. Eventually, the drug dealer is named and has a grisly fate awaiting him. Better slow down. Ticket. You remember Ronald Blake. You should. You killed him. 
my conversation with Lar Park Lincoln. Hello, friends and listeners. This is host Stephen Brittingham. Welcome to a very special episode of Hollywood and Beyond. I was born in the 70s, but grew up in the 80s, so to speak, and I love a good sequel. You are listening to Remembering Michael Landon, Part 2, with Lar Park Lincoln and Robert David Hall, two guests appearing separately, honoring one man. Each guest having worked with Michael on memorable episodes of Highway to Heaven. As mentioned during the opening segment, my first guest is the stunning and extremely talented Lar Park Lincoln. Speaking of the 80s, she made a lasting impression on me when I first saw her up on the big screen in Friday the 13th Part 7, The New Blood, and later over on Knott's Landing. And today, Lar just happens to be a highly respected acting coach. Lar is here to discuss her memories of working with Michael Landon on the 1987 episode from Season 4 of Highway to Heaven. It is a true honor to have her here today. Lar Park Lincoln, welcome to Hollywood and Beyond. Hey, Stephen, how are you? It's so good to be here. Thank you. I am doing wonderful, especially now that I'm speaking with you. Thank you, and, and, and uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. This is, this is a great theme. I'm really excited to be a part of it. Well, I appreciate that, and I am so honored to have you share your memories of working with Michael Landon, so thank you so much. Well, before we actually get to that episode of Highway to Heaven, if you don't mind, I would love to hear where you are from. Well, I am a re- I'm an Army brat. So, um, oh, I'm okay. an Army brat, and so I grew up traveling all over the United States with my father and my parents, and uh, I spent a lot of time in Texas. I was born in Texas. And uh, then I got to California, you know, as quick as I could with Hollywood beckoning. So I, I really consider L.A. home. It's where I had my children. And uh, even though they're scattered to the winds, um, I would say I'm a Texas Californian. I like that description. Thank you. Well, how did your interest in acting first develop? I'm very curious about that. I'm not sure what started it, but I remember very clearly uh, in third grade, making a decision that I would act, write, and teach. And I wrote a paper about it in my little third grade uh, classroom in Fort Hood, Texas on the military base. And I got a lot of laughs because I was um, a pretty gangly girl with big brown glasses. I'm blind as a bat to this day, always have been. And um, it just didn't seem like, like that girl could do much with uh, with those dreams, and I held close and held fast to those dreams and started working on it from then, and then by the time I was in my early teens, I was modeling and, and did that for eight years all over the world, and uh, just kept, kept my eye on acting to whenever I could actually uh, get to a place that had acting jobs instead of just modeling jobs. Well, that is remarkable, and you said teaching was one of the goals, and look at you today. It was. 
It was. <laughs> I, I didn't want to teach in a regular school system. I knew that. I yes. I knew that I had uh, a desire to to coach in some way in my early years, and I actually started teaching quite a bit of acting by uh, by twenty twenty one years old. So. Um, I just I just had kind of a natural instinct towards that. And once I found the coaches that really changed my career trajectory, uh, where I went from just being in a scene study class to studying on-camera film work in Los Angeles, I saw a huge change in my career. And I knew that was the kind of work I wanted to focus on. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. And I should share this with you. I can relate to what you were saying earlier about eyesight, because without my glasses or contacts, the only thing I can do is read. I can't see anything far away. I can't drive. So um, I just thought I would say I, I, can... I couldn't read without mine. So yes. <laughs> no oh, way. well, uh, then mine no. might be slightly better. I can read, but that's about it. Probably better. <laughs> <laughs> well, once again, it's, it's so nice to have you here. If we go back to right before you landed this role on Highway to Heaven, do you recall what was going on in your career right before uh, this opportunity came along? Yes, I do. Of course, it was an exciting time. I was starting to book at a really regular basis and booking guest star roles and starring roles. So that was really exciting. Um, you know, things were just, just really taking off and happening. I loved my agents and my managers and, and things were just in, in a really good flow. And it was a lot, I mean, it was a lot of auditions. It takes you know, literally thousands of auditions, but I had put in that work. So I was excited to start booking things. I don't know if I had shot Friday the 13th before or after I went to heaven, which was it? Well, it was pretty close, wasn't it? In, in the timeline, yeah, so to speak. Yeah, it was right speak. in there. Yeah, it was right in there. So uh, when I got the call to go read for Highway to Heaven, I was over the moon excited and um, and eagerly nervous about the first meeting. <laughs> was Michael a part of ca uh, the casting process? Uh, some people have told me that he was with their auditions. Yes, and that was quite nerve-wracking. I wasn't expecting it. No one had told me anything about that at the time. My audition was seven o'clock in the morning and, oh, wow. uh, you know, in LA traffic, of course, I had to leave my house at five basically to get to, um, to the sound stages where, where it was shot. And when I got there, I was expecting to go to a casting office, which is what you normally do. But instead I was directed across the lot to where they were actually filming the current episode and to a, um, to a long line of, they're called honey wagons. And those are the mobile dressing rooms. I'm sure you've heard of those and seen those. They're the mobile dressing rooms that are outside of all the sound stages um, for, for the, the actors. And I was directed into one of those. They're very, very tiny. A honey wagon is literally just the space. You walk up about four stairs and you go in and it's just the potty and one little hanging bar for clothes and one little cushion. That's, that's like it. They're very tiny. So imagine, I mean, I think they're probably four feet across and half of that is um, the um, dressing area and half of that is the, the couch area. So if you can imagine, I walked up to that door and I opened it and the casting director was there. And so was Michael Landon oh, in my. this little honey wagon. And it really, I was just like, okay, whoa, because I had no space to do the audition in. And I had him 
inches from my my face, and he's about a about a foot away. Uh, so you have to get over that excitement of seeing Michael Landon in person, and it being seven in the morning, and I'm reading for his show. So that was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> wow, what a way to begin the audition! So I, that's a common yes. theme. It sounds like he was just involved with the casting process. No surprise, is it? Because he also directed your episode. I don't believe yes. he wrote your episode, but he often wrote many of the episodes. I mean, he just did uh, he, so he pretty much. much he, he did everything. He, he cast, he directed, he wrote as we went and wrote during the process, and he edited. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, he did every single step in the, in the, uh, in the process. And what was amazing is he did it with, um, he did it within regular business hours. It was like seven to five, like everyone left at five, which is unheard of. And I think it's because he did so much on his own and he had a lot of the same crew that had worked with him on Bonanza and Little House and they knew each other so well. And he respected their family time of needing to leave, of shutting the day down, which we don't always get in our business because we have to shoot till we get it. So for him to have such a different and unique system was awesome and terrifying. <laughs> well, and the opportunity to get home and get refreshed and maybe spend time with friends yeah. and loved ones. I mean, wow. Yeah. You're right, Laura. That, that is a rarity. But wow, that is so beneficial. I'm curious, Laura, did you have the script in advance for the audition or did you walk in and they said, here, we would like you to read this? No, you usually have it. Well, the, the union rules state that you need to have a script 24 hours in advance. I see. Um, um, and that could just be your size, not necessarily the whole script. I, I, I didn't have the whole script. I just had a scene he wanted me to read. So I had that, and I had worked on that and got in. Um, a lot of times they will give you other scenes uh, and pieces to read when you're in an audition, so that will be cold. But I had some prep on mine, so I, I, was, I was prepared. Were you excited at the possibility of portraying a policewoman? Oh, I was so excited. It was like <laughs> the one and only time I've ever gotten to play anything that wasn't a bitchy, psychotic character. So <laughs> I was really thrilled. Uh, like literally in my life, I've probably played three people that weren't, you know, absolutely horrible. Um, and that was one I had so much fun walking across that set wearing my little police uniform. I had so much fun that day. I wish I had pictures of it. I don't, though. Well, I'll tell you what. You look good in uniform, if you don't mind me saying. In fact, <laughs> you know, in fact, I was thinking, you know what? That would have made a great series. Laura Park Lincoln portraying a policewoman. I mean, I could have pictured it because you just hey. gave such a great performance. Oh, thank you. You know, let's just, let's just start that series now. <laughs> let's, let's hey, sounds good happen. to me sounds good to me well uh when filming started and uh, oh i what? have something before filming started oh Hold go on. right ahead when i was yeah when i was reading the audition and i read the audition and he literally said okay and i said okay thinking read it again or that was okay it, it, it was not the um I, I, it was just a reaction I didn't expect. And then he said, go on out there, walk over to wardrobe, get into wardrobe, and they'll give you a script there. We'll see you tomorrow. 
So like, you knew oh, right away. I knew right that second and, of course, called my agents who said, well, that's not how it's done. I'm like, well, it's how it's done here. So, yes, it is. <laughs> so you know, that Laura, was pretty exciting. Uh, yes, it is. And there's a common theme now because others have also yeah. shared that with me, that they were told right away. And that is a rarity right as well. Then. And, you know, it comes from, I believe, because he was in charge of the whole project. So he didn't, and he's so well respected in our industry. So he didn't have to go to a board of suits to get us approved. He didn't have to jump through hoops to get his, get his actors approved. And that's why it works that way. Most of the time, you've got to go through the, direct, the casting director, the director, the producer, and the executive producers, and maybe a network call. So we didn't have that situation. They just uh, trusted what he was saying, and, and we went with it. And did you get the feeling that expectations were probably elevated uh, for this role because of, you know, working with Michael, that he probably had high expectations, but would also be fair. Absolutely. Um, as being a, uh, being a guest star role, you generally at that level only go in with three to five other actresses. And I didn't see any of them there that morning. A lot of times you see the others that are reading for the same role. And I didn't see any of that. So I don't know who all was looked at or, or talked to about the role or anything. I have no idea. And it was a very new role for me playing a young police cop because I was pretty much still just playing teenagers then. But this cop was a, a teen. She was like, you know, pretending to be a teenager or masquerading as a teenager. So uh, it was able to work. But, yes, it was it was very scary come the next morning. <laughs> I bet it was. Um, and, and such a, a, a interesting cast for the episode. So some people on there with a lot of experience, even at that point. And I'm excited to, oh, yeah. to ask you about them. I'm very curious, though, Laura. I know you were a busy lady, especially at that time, like you were describing earlier. Did you happen to catch mm-hmm. any episodes of Highway to Heaven before the audition? Like, you know, uh, maybe a, a, a year or so before at any time? Oh, of course. I, I watched the show. Absolutely. Oh, so you were a regular it was, viewer. It was your, yeah, I was a viewer. And I was also a viewer of Not Landing before I was cast on it. So those were both just huge career moves for me. It was very exciting to go into a show that you actually knew the show very well. So loved you, it. You brought so much to Knots Landing, if you don't mind me adding. Oh, thank you. Just thank such you so a, much. A, such appealing screen presence. Thank you so much. Well, you are most welcome. And when filming started, what did you notice about Michael Landon, the director? What did I notice? He, he was extremely focused, uh, which is not unusual, but he was focused and polite. And his set ran very politely. It, it was, um, there was such a level of respect across the board for cast and crew that that was something that really stood out for me. Um, I didn't know it at the time, uh, but he did already have his cancer. And because between, between shots and things, he would hang upside down on a gravity board and that was kind of the craze, and we a lot of us had those inversion boards and whatever. But you know, looking back later after after discovering it, that he worked all the way through most of that. I, I believe that he was in pain even at that time. 
I was not aware of that. I have actually not heard of that at that time. Um, so that's very interesting to hear. And I'm not, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure if, if I'm right with that, but I, I just remember that at the time, uh, you know, and it could have just been aches and pains of just being alive and on set. I don't know. Um, he never let any discomfort or agitation show, which was good. He was very, um, he was very confident in the choices that he was making, even if as actors we weren't because his shoot style was very different. Have you heard much about that? I have heard some stories. Oh, good. Okay. So, but I would love to hear what you have to say. <laughs> so um, I am migraine prone. Um, you know, I, it's just kind of a lot of creative people are, you know, busy people. And I went to the set and the very first day when we were shooting the, the one of the very first scenes in the show where Victor French brings my character into his office and says, here's our young police officer who's going to go after them. And it's at the top of the show. And that was the first thing we shot, which we did a lot of it in order, which was weird. Um, it, it just really messed with my brain <laughs> because it was so opposite of how you do <laughs> most shooting. That is unusual. Right? Like, oh, in order? <laughs> it was pretty much in order. Um, so when we were shooting that, uh, he, we did the rehearsal uh, blocking. And then he said, Lars, just come over here to the desk. Um, we'll, just, we'll just cut all of that at the top. Well, the top had me saying lines at the door. And so I thought, okay. So we came in and we shot right at the desk, me and him, me and him. And then we were going into another part of the scene. He goes, oh, no, no, we just cut all of that. And I remember going to the script supervisor and saying, I don't understand what's happening or is there something wrong, you know, because it was very odd. And she goes, oh, no, 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 that's just the way he shoots. And I later learned as the day went on, I did get a horrible migraine that day. I went home with a horrible migraine trying to figure out what was happening. Um, and I learned that he, since he wrote and directed and uh, edited, he only shot what he was actually going to edit. So he was editing in his mind's eye as we were shooting. So if he wasn't going to be on a piece of business at a doorway or walking across something, he didn't shoot it. And that's how the people got to go home on time. So there wasn't a lot of extra, extra masters, extra over the shoulders, extra coverage, because he had the confidence to know what he was shooting was going to end up on the show, not on the floor. And that took hours and hours off of everything. Um, and hard to get used to. I really to. appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. Thank but you. It was, it was great. Great instincts. He had incredible instincts, and I tell you, from an acting perspective, um, that show was a turning point for me as an actress because I saw a different way of how it was being done, and it was working, and I so appreciated how he kept a lot of the crew and people he had worked with over the years. Um, it, it just all felt, I mean, I know people say this, but it all felt very family-oriented, even on the set. Um, some shows are family shows, but the sets aren't family-oriented. So um, that made it a really moving experience for me. I've never forgotten it. That's very nice to hear. I'm very curious, Laura. Up to that point, had you ever experienced working on an episode where the director is also one of the leading actors? Or no, was that a I new had... experience for you? No, I, ha I had not done that. Now, on Hunter... 
uh, Fred Dreyer and Stephanie Kramer at some point were doing some direction and production, but um, I I don't think that they were involved in that when I when I was on the episode. Um, that was a fun show on Hunter because I had two leading actors that carried the show, and the rest of us kind of filtered in and out. And that was that was a really good experience. And Dean Stockwell was on that episode. Um, but no, I had oh, very nice. Yeah. Oh, it was awesome. He, well, and very appropriate for today. The Hunter episode was about Aryan terrorism. Um, so that was, that was cool. Oh, I see. Um, yeah. I used to watch that show too. Yeah. I, I actually got <laughs> like a I said, threat. I grew up in the eighties. <laughs> yeah. I got a bomb threat after shooting that show after it aired, uh, because I was playing such did a horrible. Really? Yeah, I did. I did. Um, and this was unusual back in the time, but, you know, Rebecca Schaefer had been attacked at that time and, and people were getting a little more forward. Um, but it, the, the theme of the show was very strong. And that's, that's I'm sure, what, what caused that form of protest even back then. But those characters are great to play. Um, but no, I hadn't worked with anyone at that time. I worked with writer directors, which are not always your best friend on a set. Writer directors are more difficult because, it, especially if they're if they're first time writer directors, they they can be difficult because they're trying to do both sides and and it's their baby, so to speak, and it can be more difficult. Um, you know, it, it, we all have a job on a set to do, and sometimes you have to pick the job you're doing, I think, and stay focused on that and not try to do everything. But then again, look at Michael. He did everything, and it was fabulous. So. <laughs> he, he really <laughs> sure turned, was. He had the ability of just turning the entertainment world upside down, the set world. Mm-hmm. That's what he did. He rattled cages in a very calm way, and he did it his way, and it worked for years. And, and the work still stands for itself. I had, I had a student just recently, a couple of weeks ago, who was a young student, 19. And he sent me a text late at night. And he goes, oh, my gosh, I was just watching Highway to Heaven, and it's my coach. I'm like, well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that's today in 2020. Here we are still talking about it, Laura. And here we are still talking about him. Well, I tell you what, having you... Um... You know, share your memories of working with him is just such an honor for me. Thank you. You know, I I have a question. This is like a a question I'm just wondering about. In a scene where he's uh, acting, let's say maybe with you or others, but, you know, obviously still directing, does he actually say, you know, action or rolling or or does someone else do that on the side? I just thought of that. I I believe it was uh, the first AD that took over that role. I see. Yeah. And that's done, that's done pretty commonly when you have someone that's maybe, maybe working in a scene or something themselves. They'll have their, their assistant director. I have my studio assistant, Becca, and she's the one that, that uh, guides me when I'm shooting on camera or doing an appearance or something. Uh, Becca's in charge <laughs> of being sure I get where I'm supposed to go and. And, um, there you go. Yeah. It's always everybody, good to have a, an, a, a, someone helping you out like that, isn't it? Oh my gosh. Everybody needs that number two <laughs> because they're really number one, you know, nothing happens without them. <laughs> I'm very much interested in asking you about the gentleman that portrayed your father. I mean, there's an oh, yes. actor where you see all over the oh place. Oh my gosh. Yes. And I, I, I would love to ask you about Ken Swaff. Yes. I remember who portrayed Ken. your dad on the episode. Yeah. I loved the relationship that she and her dad had. 
being a, a cop and a cop, you know, I just, I just loved their whole dynamic. And he was, I do remember he was such a warm person to work with. Um, very giving actor. He was awesome. You know, there's another actor on that set that I thought would just make it huge. And I'm trying to think of his name. I need to look it up on IMDb or something. He played, um, he played the, the narc that I was, Actually, Becca's going to look it up for me now. He played the, the the kid that I was buying the drugs from in the hallway and at the party. And he was so intense. She's pulling it up for us to see what his name was. He was so good. Is this the main guy that was selling the drugs? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. It could be Jason Oliver Lipset, but I could be wrong. I don't know. We're going to look that up here. Uh, or we'll Jason better. Oliver, perhaps that. Uh, but But let me know. I'm not... Um, sure if yeah. I'm correct about that. We are looking. Um, he was so intense and such a good actor and so focused. He yes. reminded me of Jack Nicholson when he was when he was working with me, that kind of intensity. Um, That's and my I, praise. Yeah, I, yes, it, it was at the time. I mean, you know, when you're about the same age as someone else, you don't all, often, you know, you're not always going, oh, wow, this is an incredible actor. I mean, you're usually enjoying the work of other actors, but if you're pretty much on the same level with your age or what you're playing, um, you're kind of colleagues more than fans. Right. Um, and I remember, I remember so clearly loving his work and I don't know if he did much else. So let me just take a second here and look this up with Becca. Yeah, sure. Go right see, ahead. See what we I can really find appreciate that. it. It was him and he did play in stand by me. Okay, um, Great. Yes, it is Jason Oliver. Jason Oliver lifts <laughs> it now, and he was really. Short. I'm known for my research, Lar. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. But I forget where my keys are, so I don't know yeah. well, what that's all. all about. Hey, the new cars—you don't need a key. Oh my gosh, I'm looking at this picture of him, grown up, and he only has the yes. one. He only has these two shots on his IMDb, um, which I'm surprised mm. because. Yeah, he's he's really he's gorgeous and um and I recognize those eyes from all the way back back then. I'm going to click over here on his official website. Who knows? Maybe I will reach out and say yeah. hello, dear friend, to this um hey, that I think I think he would be uh very surprised and really enjoy that. Yeah. Let's see. Open that. Okay, well, so see, we, we found out something then, and he had stayed on my mind all of that time, and I guess, you know, there was a, there was a reason, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is a lady that was in a scene that, that you were included with, and her name is Darlene Conley, who would go on to give this incredible performance over on The Bold and the Beautiful for years. Oh. But prior to that, she would show up on episodes and she would show up in films. And anytime you would see her, she was just a firecracker. So she played the uh, mother of the uh, boy that was accusing your character of, you know, inappropriately leading him on oh, for information. Right. And she what came in that last... scene and was just What's a Darlene last... Conley. Conway? Uh, Conley. Con oh yes, the red oh, yes. Hair. I remember her. Yes, I yes. do remember her. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, even in that scene, she was a firecracker. Goodness, she was on Guiding Light, and for, since eighty nine, 
since goodness gracious, she was on a long time. Yes. I do remember her. Um, yeah, the boy was. That's right. That was one of the subplots. I haven't watched the show since the eighties, so I don't know. But I do remember that was a subplot. It's been a while, huh? Yeah, accusing me of. Oh my goodness, she was in Valley of the Dolls in nineteen sixty-seven. You know, that's something and lady sings the blues. I mean, sometimes you just don't know and you go back in and look at things and, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just um, now on Highway to Heaven. It says that she's playing Mrs. Parker because his name was Mike Parker. I remember the the character's name was because my brother's name is Mike Park. And uh, is it really? Yeah. So I I remember (laughs) uh, I remembered that when I. When I read it, yeah. <laughs> well, I really appreciate you sharing your memories of people that you worked with. Thank you. I was wondering, from an observational standpoint, what about the relationship between Victor French and Michael Landon? Because obviously the two work so well together. And I must say, Lar, you know, when I saw Victor first on Little House and then on Highway to Heaven, I mean, that man could really, really act. I mean, he could be very emotional. But I'm just wondering, what did you observe between the two that stands out in your mind? Well, I think that they were actually Siamese twins and (laughs) (laughs) shared the same brain. (laughs) That's a great description. (laughs) So what what was good for one was good for the other. Um, It just was seamless in the work. Seamless. And, you know, I strive to be able to do that in my life. We've done a few student projects. We finished one, uh, a student project here at the studio uh, through quarantine. We did something. We created a little web series called Friday the Quarantine. And um, it's a comedy with, uh, with all of the students. It kept everyone engaged. And we had our last shot of it with social distancing last weekend um, in the burning Texas heat, the hottest day we'd had, and we're all, all the actors are outside in the on the street. And uh, Becca, working as a shooting camera and also working with me, we're very seamless in the work that we do too. And that's what happens when you uh, when you work with someone, you stay with your people. You don't always look for something better or what's greener on the other side. You stay with your people, develop your relationships learn about each other and you can work together like that more seamlessly and that's what they have been and I remember that very well and I must say going back to the gentleman who betrayed your father I totally agree with you Laura you know in acting you know sometimes you watch something and it's supposed to be a relationship of some sort let's say it's an episode your guest stars but you know what sometimes you may not feel like that longevity. And I instantly felt that your two characters were father and daughter, both uh, cops. And, and that's why I told you that I could envision you like in your <laughs> own series as a policewoman, yeah. because you yeah. were so convincing in the part I should add as well. But I just well, wanted to commend you, you for thank that. You so much. That's so much. It was um, the scene that I had to do up in the auditorium speaking out to the school um, that one gave me yes. some nerves in my tummy because those were all real high school and different actors that they, you know, a lot of background. There were a lot of people in that scene. And I remember walking from my dressing room to the set wearing my little police uniform 
you know, pretending I was Heather Locklear from, you know, TJ Hooker. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> hey, she pulled yes. it off. She had two series on at the same time. We were. That's um, right. Yeah. We had the same acting coach in LA. Margie Haber is our um, oh, uh, wow. personal acting coach, and she was lovely. But I remember stepping up to do that, um, that scene. And there were just, you know, sometimes when there's just so many people around, you don't, you know, you're not, it's just very exciting and you just hope you don't mess up and make everybody have to wait on you. So. The nerves kick in. Sure. Uh, yeah, I, I don't blame you. There was a lot of uh, teenagers in that scene, obviously. Yeah, Plus were. you have Michael and everybody else looking at you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I've That's interesting, few... isn't it, as an actor? How it is. Can, yeah. I've had in a... your mind. Yes. Um, I've had a few instances where I, where as a guest star, you usually come into a show that's already been on, like Not Landing or Highway to Heaven or Hunter or um, even an episode of The Outlaws had, had already been on for a few episodes, and that was with Rod Taylor. Um, so, you know, that's a pretty big, exciting moment. So, you know, when you come in as a show that's already established, there's another level of nerves for an actor because you're not creating it from the beginning uh, with everyone on the mm-hmm. show. You're coming into the show. You're coming into their space, the show they own, that they've done. Their characters are well-developed, and they're in a routine. And every week they're getting, it's kind of like every week you're getting a, a new kid to babysit. You know, the guest stars come in, and, and they don't know anybody, and they don't know how it works. And so you're always the new kid when you're in guest star land. And, um, and it's exciting and nerve-wracking. <laughs> Hmm. Yes. And that's where training pays off, doesn't it? Because Absolutely. you walk onto that set and, and that's going to be what helps you get through it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You've got to have really solid training to fall back on. Well, anybody would be fortunate enough to train with you. There's no question in my mind about that. Thank you so well, much. Laura, I am so excited to ask you this uh, because not only your knowledge of the industry itself uh, being an actress, but just being a regular viewer of Highway to Heaven. When you think back, isn't it something, it seems like I'm more impressed today than even then of how ahead of his time he was. There was episodes on environmental issues, oh, handicapped absolutely. issues. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it is really impressive. Mm-hmm. He was known for that. His His shows were... Uh, were geared with a with a theme that made a difference or that brought up a topic that needed to be addressed, even back then. You know, we've had that all throughout time. Even, you know, you go back to All in the Family and some of those shows and the Jeffersons that all had themes that were being talked about even then in the the 70s, the 80s, the 60s, you know, and, and he continued that. I mean, he had themes on uh, Little House on the Prairie that were very strong. You know, jealousy and anger, and oh yes. Um, yes, you know the haves and the have not, have nots, and uh, you know it continued on that way. And then, in, in, you know, in Bonanza, it was a family show also, where you had your, you know, uh, all of your family mm-hmm. um, different interchanges that were were going on. So, yeah, it was truly, truly an experience that I could never ever forget, and will be always grateful for. Just going from casting that day in casting and then going all the way through the process. Um, I felt it just elevated my entire career and it 
taught me so much. And I still give those lessons today on how I walked into that little honey wagon and this huge star was standing right there <laughs> and how it, how it goes from there. Oh, my goodness. Do you know what it, Becca just did? Expect the unexpected. Yes. Let me tell you something, what my assistant Becca just sure. did. Um, yes. She just pulled up still pictures of me on Highway to Heaven just now. Actually, oh, I screenshot wow. She screenshot them just now, and I'm so excited. <laughs> I've never seen these. So, Stephen, thank you so oh, much wow. for including me. I got to see these today. Wow. Oh, it's my pleasure. I really want to thank you for your your time uh, sh- sharing your memories and congratulations on a just impressive and outstanding career. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. I I appreciate it. Um it was always my goal in this It was always my goal as a young actress. Those are amazing. Um I love them. Um I one of my favorite uh mentors that I always strove to be like was Jessica Lange. And what I loved about Jessica Lange was that, you know, when she did King Kong, it was such a flop and she was panned so badly, but she was playing the role, you know, correctly. And a lot of the young people today think that Jessica Lange started with American Horror Story. They don't realize this actress has been around for 5 billion years. And it was always my goal to create a body of work that would span decades, span time, and to be the actress that people could say, oh, I want to watch that. You know, I love how she works. I want to watch that. So instead of striving for fame or celebrity, I was always striving to create that long body of work. And and this was a huge part, being in Highway to Heaven and some of these these earlier pieces, because they were the perfect example for me on how to act on a set and how to learn and how to grow and then ultimately how to teach. And the focus on artistry, like you were mentioning. Yes. I mean, I completely understand, Laura, and agree. To me, that's of the utmost importance compared to just trying to achieve fame. Yeah, exactly. You know, and of course, today with everything, you know, social media and everything, and even IMDb is very commercialized now where it never was before. Um, are all geared towards, you know, becoming a Kardashian type of, of person or um, not person, Kardashian type of icon, I guess, um, which in itself yes. did not hold a lot of interest for me. So um, I just, you know, and I would say this to any actor starting, you just keep going. Every every job, every background role, we all do background when we start. Um, I always yes. say, people will say, oh, background, you know, but you know what? If we didn't have background, we wouldn't have a scene because it would just be a couple of talking heads. You have to have background. They yes. Support, they support the entire show. There's no show without them. Very important. So I'm constantly telling people to not uh, not look down upon doing background work because it's the building block of your career. And then everything else is just another step on creating your career. You know, it's everything is a step. They all work um, try not to think of something as being your big break, although people do have breakout roles. But um, really, everything builds upon, every role builds upon the role ahead of it and sets the stage for the next role. Well, Laura, I'll briefly tell you something that backs up what you just said about background work. When I was working on A Victim of Love, the Shannon Moore story, 
I, I portrayed a bartender. I was in the opening wedding scene that was outside the reception. Yeah. And the director said to walk by, uh, it was Dwight Schultz and then the, the lady that was playing Shannon Moore, and I'm to walk by behind her. Well, I really paid attention, and I noticed that right when he asked her name and she says, I'm Shannon Moore, I timed it, or at least attempted to, to walk at that moment. And guess what happens? Good for you. <laughs> yes, when she says, I'm Shannon Moore, I, there I am. <laughs> there you are. Good job. And that's what a good actor should do, is know their technique and their training, and that you can up-level <laughs> your own appearances. You absolutely can. Good for you. And Laura, finally, I'll just ask you this. when Do you recall when you actually watched yourself on A Highway to Heaven, um, that must have been a, a just a, a very joyful occasion for you to see your work on that show. I actually don't even know when or if I ever watched it around the time. Um, as gotcha. crazy as that sounds, my, my, well, you may have been that busy. <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe that busy, but it's also, uh, my, my drive in acting is to do the acting, uh, watching the product afterwards is not as interesting to me. Um, oh, <laughs> I don't know. I, see. It's, okay. it's, it's, I actually, it's kind of really I, love actually doing the work and I don't need to see myself up on the screen. Although I will go back and take a look gotcha. at the episode now. And it is on Netflix, just so you know. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, Laura, I want to thank you for joining me. You have made this episode just extra special and personally uh, meaningful for me. So thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. It was really my pleasure. Got him, buddy. We got the ones that did it to you. And Denise is fine. She's fine. Mike admitted he lied. She would have been there to see it. What's that? I smell food. I'm starving. Up next is my conversation with Robert David Hall. Many of Michael Landon's efforts as a filmmaker consisted of socially relevant themes. On the episode titled The Squeaky Wheel, from the final season of Highway to Heaven, those efforts continued to shine through. My guest portrayed Wayne Seacrest a hard-working, intelligent man who was a devoted husband. Yet, Wayne finds himself fired at no fault of his own. A war vet who lost both of his legs, Wayne relies on public transportation, and when a bus lift gets jammed, Wayne loses his job and his sense of well-being. Wake up, lady. Another work day. Mm. More coffee? 
No, thanks, babe. I gotta get to work kind of early today. What's that? Oh, it's a computer program I've written. Should save the company thousands. Yeah, I don't like that. <laughs> we'll see. Oh, I called the hotel. Our room's been confirmed. Yeah? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you mean we're finally gonna have that wildly romantic weekend you've been hounding me about for all these years? <laughs> well, look, here's another one of my favorites. Michael Landon. Never heard of him. What are you kidding? Bonanza, little house on the prairie. Sorry, it doesn't ring a bell. I keep forgetting. You've been dead for 40 years. Oh, nuts. What's the matter? This darn lift, we've been having trouble with it. Come on, I gotta get off. I work here. I'm sorry, sir, it's broken down. I'll have to call it in. Now, wait a minute. How long is it gonna take this time? I have got to get to work. So do I, driver. How long are we going to be sitting here because of him? We're not. I'll call it in and a maintenance truck will meet us en route. Come on. If you keep going, I'm going to have to get another bus to bring me back here. I'll be late for work. I've got to get off this bus. Excuse me, driver. My uh, friend and I can carry the man off the bus. Oh, I'm sorry. I can't allow that company policy. What policy? Look, what if you drop him? Who do you think he's going to sue, you or the bus company? What if you hurt your back? Who are you gonna sue? Get the picture? I'm sorry, sir, if you wanna file a complaint with the bus company. What good is that gonna do? Is the bus company gonna get me another job when I lose this one? You know, you ought to show a little gratitude. The city has spent millions of dollars on this equipment just to get you people around. What more do you want? I want it to work. On an emotional, uplifting episode, my guest gave an impressive performance that still holds up so well today. Wayne turns down an offer from Jonathan to help raise awareness for handicapped issues, such as public transportation and building access. Yes? Miss Secrets, I'm Jonathan Smith. This is Mark Gordon. We wondered if we could talk to your husband for a minute. Wayne? Yeah, These gentlemen want to speak with you. They're with the Handicap Awareness Group. Don't need him. I'm well aware that I'm handicapped. We're with action to advance the handicap, Mr. Seacrest. I'm Jonathan Smith. This is Mark Gordon. Well, you caught us at kind of a bad time, fellas. We were uh, just on our way out the door. Okay, what can I do for you? We need your help. <laughs> it's a good one. I'm, I'm sorry to laugh, but uh, I can't even help myself. I was fired from my job today. So right now I'm feeling kind of useless to anyone. Oh, why were you fired? I suppose the reason was for being late, but the lift on the bus wouldn't work again. Well, that's just the kind of thing we're working on. See, we need people to help demonstrate the problems of the handicapped, you know, access to public buildings, restrooms, buses. Look, I'm sorry, guys, I'm no crusader. I can just barely take care of my wife and myself. Sure as hell, I'm not gonna take on any more new burdens right now. Well, you know what they say, Mr. Seacrest, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. You know, all we wanna do is make a little noise right now, draw attention, make people more aware of the problem. No, I'm sorry. Look, Patty and I are on our way out to the Bridgemore Hotel right now for a weekend of fun and relaxation. Beyond that, I make no commitments. Learns how to drive a car and take a trip with his lovely wife. Things change dramatically when Wayne has an altercation at a drive-in, resulting in a horrifying car chase that sends Wayne over the edge. Jones, you got a problem, man? 
No, I don't have a problem. We're just trying to hear the movie, okay? Keep it down. The movie on problem. Yeah! Turn it down. You got a bad attitude, man. You know, we're just a few citizens watching a movie, trying to have a good time. And you come out of nowhere screaming and shouting demands? We're just trying to watch the movie, okay? We're just trying to listen to the movie, all right? <laughs> i tell you what, man, once you get out of your car, be a man, huh, and then tell me what to do. tried to ride off the street last night. That was you? You ain't got no legs, man. No wonder you couldn't fight. Don't try it, Vato. I'll tear your legs off just like mine. What are you gonna do, huh? You, you gonna take us down right here, huh? You gonna kill us all? That's right. But first, you're gonna know why. Yeah, tell him why, Wayne. I wanna hear it, too. Hey, go on, tell him. Tell him how you went to Vietnam and had your legs blown off. Then you came home and found out nobody really gave a damn. Don't try it. Get out of here, Jonathan. Hey, don't worry about me being in here, Wayne. Go on, waste them. It'll make you feel better. Will Jonathan stop Wayne from carrying out a deadly plan of revenge? Will Wayne realize that he still has so much to offer? Let's find out what my guest, Robert David Hall, has to say about all of that. Hello again, friends and listeners. Welcome to a very special episode, Remembering Michael Landon, Part 2. As mentioned during the extended opening segment, my guest appeared on an emotional, inspirational, and even edgy episode from the final season of Highway to Heaven. This gentleman is known by millions of viewers from the original CSI as Coroner Dr. Albert Robbins. His performance on CBS's CSI was so appealing, it is difficult to imagine that show without him. Robert David Hall is here to share his memories of working with Michael Landon and his thoughts on his character and the overall message from this powerful episode of Highway to Heaven. Truly an honor for me to have Robert here today. Welcome to Hollywood and Beyond, Robert. Thank you, Stephen. It's great to be with you. Well, thank you for joining me. It's so nice to be speaking with you. I really appreciate it. I'm very honored. And you know, your performance is one I've never forgotten on that episode of Highway to Heaven. You did an outstanding job. Well, you know what I remember most about it is that I actually got to kiss the girl. <laughs> that is a good thing, isn't it? <laughs> that doesn't happen often with a coroner. So, uh, yeah, it, 
and Michael was such a, a ball of energy and, uh, a delightful man, a very funny and, uh, you know, powerful man. He was one of the best directors I ever worked with because he knew everyone's job intimately because he'd worked for 35 years in television. Well, you know, uh, Robert, Chris Hendry, who was on the first special for Michael Landon, he described him as a true Renaissance man because he did so many things artistically. Well, you know, uh, now some of what I tell you may be apocryphal, but I've heard it from other people. During the brief times there were strikes in our industry, Michael paid his crews their full salaries. And uh, they were as loyal to him as any army under any general, is, is what I'm told. And if anybody tried to mess with their boss, his, the guys who worked for him and the women who worked for him were loyal in a way you could not believe. That is something else. I'm not surprised to hear that, and, and thank you for sharing that. That is very interesting for me to hear. He knew everybody's job, too, from the cameraman to the grips to the caterer. Michael had been, when you think about it, very few people have been on three of the most successful series in the history of television. And Michael started when he was, what, 18 or something? So his entire life, he worked almost every week. And, you know, uh, when you're younger, you're a sponge. And he picked up on everything. You know, he was probably just out of the school studio era. So I, I'm guessing he was a young adult when he started on Bonanza. It, it, it never ceases to amaze me that this young man, uh, he, his whole life spanned television, if you think about it. It is very impressive, isn't it? when you think about all of his accomplishments and, and extra efforts as a filmmaker and artist. And this episode is titled The Squeaky Wheel. Um, <laughs> you not only get to kiss the girl, but you get to do some dancing, which we'll get into a little bit later. I really like that scene. But I'm very curious, Robert, do you recall what you were doing as an actor right before the opportunity to appear on Highway to Heaven? Well, I, I was struggling. I was, any job was a good job and I was definitely not rolling in dough. You know, it was, a. Uh, all actors go through a period like this, but the, uh, I was doing voiceover jobs. I was doing, uh, you know, opening supermarkets. I was doing anything that paid enough money to feed my family and pay for my insurance. And so getting the highway to heaven was an answer to prayer. Almost. It was, uh, just such a rare, a rare thing. And at that time you're interested in building up your resume. So, uh, to, to be able to say you'd been had a guest star on highway to heaven was a very big deal. And I was, I was excited, you know, just Michael Landon was a legendary figure by that time. And, uh, Victor French was quite a guy too. <laughs> yes. I, it's, it's funny. I, 
I try not to live in the past. I like, I like the present and the future best of all, but I have such fond, fond memories of Michael that, you know, some of them I can't share with you because he had a body sense of humor, but he always looked for the humor in things. I remember Saturday night live had done a bit, uh, called Jew or not a Jew. And Michael's real name was Israel Horowitz. And he just found this Saturday night live thing hilarious. And, <laughs> and all day, the, the Monday after that Saturday night live appeared, he, he just laughed about it all day long. You would think some people would take offense, but Michael was not that kind of guy. If, if he poked fun at you, you could poke fun right back at him. Good sense of humor. It, it sure makes a big difference. Um, no doubt about it. And you know, Robert, I am so excited to ask you about this. I'm thinking as an actor, you just described your situation. So w- reading this script... I'm sure it must have really stood out to you that there was something really special here, potentially. Well, you know, as a man, as a, as a person with a disability, I, I had to be careful about scripts because sometimes they were very silly. You know, they, you, you mentioned the title of the episode, Squeaky Wheel. I had been in three episodes of three different shows all called squeaky wheel because people assumed that if you were in a wheelchair that you were one way and if you if you were disabled you acted one way and uh the good thing about michael was he didn't have any preconceptions he treated the characters as human beings rather than a stereotypical you know poor disabled guy or at sad or angry disabled guy. And I have to tell you that was so important to my career to be treated like an actor rather than as a stereotypical, you know, get me a disabled guy, that kind of thing. Well, I really admired your performance very much. Um, I've never forgotten it. As I've mentioned to you, I'm wondering, is there any, uh, story regarding the audition by chance <laughs> well <laughs> but the audition happened so fast he, he heard me speak he looked at my face and within five minutes i had the part and it doesn't usually happen that way wow. it usually happens to put you through a gauntlet and then they have to bring you back for a second audition and a third audition, and they have to make sure that the studio likes you and the network likes you and all this kind of stuff. It's a miracle anybody gets a job. But Michael had the power. If he wanted you on his shows, that was it. And, and he looked at me and he said, he'll do just fine. And I remember thinking, what is this? But, I, but I, I learned a long time ago that if somebody said yes, it's a yes. So, you know, uh, I, w- I was thrilled. And then he said, I, wa- I want you to meet your co-star. And I met the lovely young woman. I, you know, I haven't stayed in touch with her, but he was going to play my, my wife. And uh, we spent some time 
getting to know one another and uh, he couldn't have been a nicer person. <laughs> Michael, Michael used shorthand a lot. You know, there were a lot of names to remember, crew and cast and guest stars and network people and all that. And if he knew you, he'd call you by your name. I, I'm Robert David Hall, but my friends call me David or Dave, and he called me Davey. Oh. And told a woman, he'd, he'd call her Sugar or Mama or whatever. You can't get away with that today, but uh, he never meant anything rudely. Uh, he was one of the first guys I ever heard who referred to guys as dude, which was pretty funny. And he always knew what he wanted to do with his shot. And I can't tell you how important that is. A lot of people are just guessing, you know, well, let's do 20 takes. And if one of them works, fine. Michael wasn't that guy. He was more like Clint Eastwood in that he knew exactly what shot he was aiming for. And he didn't mess around. You know, his, if his shows started at nine o'clock, they ended at six o'clock where other shows I've worked on CSI included were sometimes 12 or 14 hour days. And, and Michael wanted his crew to get home to their family. That's very nice. Very nice to hear. And also uh, refreshing to hear that. I'm, I No doubt the actors and crew appreciate that so much. It keeps you refreshed. And like you said, you get to spend some time with people you care about. And that's so important as well. It only benefits everyone's performance um, when it comes to it that. It does. You know, there's a, there's a certain pressure of working with Michael because his ex- expectations were high, but you knew that he cast you because he believed you were exactly the right person for the role. So that gave you a certain amount of confidence and freedom in your uh, performance, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. And I'm thinking of that sense of humor. Do you, I don't know if you recall the opening opening scene with um, uh, his character and, and Victor French with Mark, and they're walking down the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and and Victor's all excited about seeing the names, and then he comes across Michael Landon, <laughs> and, and and he goes, "You know Michael Landon, don't you? Bonanza, Little House in the Prairie." And Jonathan says, "No, never heard of him. Sorry." And I thought that was just yeah. that that was just wonderful. What I remember, Stephen, about that scene, they they kept having to clear off people from the sidewalk because all of the tourists and the locals and everybody were so flipped out that Michael Landon was walking down Hollywood Boulevard <laughs> that they couldn't see and you know because people kept interrupting and yelling hey Michael <laughs> that would uh, cause issues wouldn't it no doubt about it, it would, and and all of the uh, production assistants jobs were on the line because mm. they had to keep people quiet and keep them from running across the street in the back part of the shot. So they finally got it, and it was a funny, a funny way to start the show, too. Well, I'm thinking about your, um, your very first scenes, where it's, very, it's established right away that, you know, your character, I, I take it he's a professional, and he enjoys his work, and he's excited about some new computer software that he's developed. And he even mentions that it could save the company 
a whole bunch of money, literally thousands and thousands. So that tells me that he's a very intelligent man. And unfortunately, he has issues getting to work. Uh, he gets on the bus, uh, transportation, okay, but he has trouble getting off because the lift is jammed. And that causes yeah. your character to become fired later. But I was just watching that and thinking just how unfortunate a man that was dedicated to his job and he couldn't help the circumstance would get fired for that. I wanted to ask you, Robert, do you recall back at that time, I believe this would be 1989, do you recall how things were as far as uh, accessibility for handicapped people for buses, restrooms, and, and ramps? Uh, you know, I've never been a, a super radical guy, but I was one of those people who chained himself to buses with some people I know because we were trying to get accessible buses for disabled citizens in Los Angeles. And I've, I've always felt that it was important that people with disabilities participated in uh, society. And one of the reasons I think I became an actor was that I, I wanted to be part of the story and it's uh, I thought about that stuff a lot, Stephen, during that time. I see. And uh, it, it, it mattered a great deal to me. I've been on the boards of disability organizations uh, since my accident in 78. So it's, uh, it's still a very important thing. I, it's hard to, if, you're, if you were a person with a disability or the, uh, you know, a close relative of a person with a disability, I don't have to tell you any of this because you know it, but it, it seems like everybody's asking for your understanding or accommodation or whatever, and that was one of the things about Michael Landon that I loved. If you could do your job well, he didn't care if you were red, brown, yellow, black, white, disabled, gay, straight, whatever. He, His only requirement was that you be professional and i've seen him fire people who weren't and i've i've seen him uh make a an average actor better i think he helped me really rise to a, a good performance in that episode you know the more i i don't usually talk about old episodes of stuff i've done but i was intrigued to talk to you because i remember so many parts of this you talked about the bus I remember the lady who played the bus driver. Yes, I was going to bring her up. She played, She was really ornery, and it was hardly acting. She was so mean to me <laughs> that I, I, I didn't try to act. I, I just reacted. Yeah. And they say the best acting is reacting. <laughs> she had such a scowl on her face and was so ticked off to have to deal with a disabled person. And it reminded me of being in New York when the cabbies wouldn't pick up anybody in a wheelchair because it was an a-, a hassle for them. And finally, a few of us, you know, went to the taxi commission and said, uh, this can't happen. And we managed to help uh, get a law passed. But, you know, everything takes time. It's just that none of us have patience. I, I hear you. 
I hear you, and, and and that's very generous of you to to be willing to speak about this episode. So thank you once again, and and that lady you're referring to is Mary Pat Gleason, of course, and Mary Pat. Mary Pat was in a million TV shows and movies. Yes, she had such a and such a great heart. She was wonderful. <laughs> and with that face, like you said, it was already. I mean, she got half her acting done just by whatever look she had. <laughs> Going up that morning, she'd, she'd done more than half her job. That's right. That's very <laughs> very good casting. You know, Stephen, I, I have to tell you, I don't know why, but you just reminded me of something. Okay, sure. Uh, we had a scene in that show where I had to drive a car down Van Nuys Boulevard. And back in those days, the way they shot those things was, they would put a quarter of a million dollar camera on the hood of a car and it would, and you would have to drive the car with this expensive camera in your face, actually on the street. And I back, I've had surgery since then, but I was very nearsighted and I was terrified oh my. to have to drive a camera car down Van Nuys Boulevard. So and you were really Michael, driving, you were really driving that. Car. I was driving the car, but I couldn't see anything because the camera was right in front of my face. Mm. And to make matters worse, Michael was crouched down behind the driver's seat with a microphone saying, go, go <laughs> left, right. You know, and I, and I'm, here's Michael Landon behind me. And here's this giant camera in front of me. And I somehow got through the scene but I, 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 I think I needed a, a drink afterwards. It was so absolutely terrifying to do it. And Michael, you know, he says, good job, and he moves on to the next thing. <laughs> there's, there's no time, especially in television, to sit around and congratulate yourself. Yes. You've got to get 12 or 14 pages done every day, and it's all about moving forward. Well, I'll tell you what, when I see that scene again, it's going to have a whole new meaning for me. Uh, uh, I really appreciate you sharing that story. I, I'm curious, though. The car did swipe against the side of the building. Was that supposed to happen, or was that just from all the uh, pressure of the situation? That was supposed to happen. Okay, I just you wanted know, to make sure. You just reminded me of something else. There was a scene where the wheelchair goes down the steps of the Pasadena City Hall. Yes. I don't know if you remember that. Yes, on purpose. I wanted to do that myself, but they made me let a, a stuntman do it. Oh, okay. Because they considered it too dangerous for an actor to do it. But I thought I could make it down the steps. But the they let me do the first four steps. Then they grabbed me out of the chair, and the last 20 steps were some... Uh, a wonderful guy named Jerome, somebody who looked a little bit like me and they made him up to look exactly like me. And this guy goes careening down the steps in a wheelchair. And I thought, boy, th this guy, this character is really angry to go down 24 steps of the Pasadena city hall. I'll tell you what, well, that would have been a very uh, interesting if you had done it. Um, I, I admire your determination there, but but, uh, but now that I think about it, that that was a lot of steps. Um, 
Yeah. And it really did look like you did it. So if that means anything, uh, uh, no, that that's Michael's skill at, you know, yeah. most of the TV is imagination. I mean, you can make, you can make people think you're, uh, in outer space or in the middle of the ocean or, you know, on Hollywood Boulevard when you're actually on a soundstage. But one of the interesting things about that show was that it had so many location sites, Pasadena City Hall, Van Nuys High School, uh, one of the last drive-ins in Southern California, the Ambassador Hotel. We shot that final scene at the Ambassador, and they were getting ready to, uh, you know, uh, wreck some of the, they saved the, the, the main part of the hotel, the, pre, the conservation people, but most of the Ambassador Hotel was knocked down about a month after we filmed there. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and that was a great, great L.A. landmark, too. Mm. L.A. gets landmarks way too early. Well, that's a shame. That's a shame. To, yeah. That something like that would happen. Well, you're making me think yeah. of that dance scene again. And I have to say, you were very smooth out there. <laughs> and uh, how, how much, I mean, did that come quickly to you? Or did that take a lot of practice with all the twirls well, and movement? I, I seem to recall the actress's name was Deborah. Yes, um, Deborah Benson. Deborah Benson. And she was an absolutely lovely woman. And she was about to get married. And I, I just convinced her that we, we, you know, we try to transfer some of our good feelings about other people to each other. And we dance as if we were in love with each other. And a lot of acting is as if, if, if that makes sense. Well, there was definite chemistry there. I, I, I noticed that immediately. And, and uh, you, you, when you're acting, you, you think of somebody in your real life who you knew. I, she reminded me of a girl named Cheryl Benson from high school. Uh, you know, you just, there's a lot of transference going on when you're acting. I, I often tried to channel my dad or my track coach from high school or one of the doctors I met when I was in the hospital. And it's, it's really strange how that happens. It is a very interesting process. Uh, this is true. Also, you know, sometimes you don't know what it is at the time, but it comes back to you later. You, uh, in my experience, the best acting I've ever done happened when I was really frightened or really thinking I'm, I was in over my head. You know, you, you don't have your, your confidence to bolster you or to fake you out. You're, you're really in, uh, deep waters. And I, I think the best performances come when you think, Oh my God, I might fail. And then, and you have to swim. You have only two options, thinking or swimming. I really like that answer. And thank you for sharing that perspective. Um, I, I, I find that very inspirational. Thank you. It happens to everybody at some time in their life, you know, whether you're a teacher, a plumber, 
a mom, a housewife, whatever, there are, most of life is, you know, pretty ordinary, but every so often you get these black and white or really vivid moments of choice. And that's one of the reasons I think actors like acting because we get to confront or we get to, you know, I would never behave the way I do in, in a lot of the things I've done. It's especially fun to play bad guys because you get to act up in ways that would get you arrested otherwise. Yes. <laughs> it's fun developing a character. And yes. if it's a character you're only going to play one time, you have to really go for it all the way from the beginning, if that makes sense. It sure does. And you know what? This kind of ties in, at least to a certain extent, on a scene I'm, I'm wanting to bring up with you. Even though your character is a good man, he does get very angry over a situation that occurred at the drive-in. And you already discussed the car ch- It was a car chase with these, you know, for lack of a better word, some young punks who were being disrespectful and, and they chased you later on. Well... Later on in the episode, your character comes across them by chance and goes and buys a weapon and tracks them down. And I have to tell you, it was kind of an unusual moment for A Highway to Heaven because your character was really there to perhaps do them in. He was so angry. He even tells them that I am going to kill you and I'm going to tell you why. But then that's when Jonathan shows up with some words of wisdom. Any memories of shooting that scene by chance? Yes. The gentleman who played the main Vato, the main punk, was uh, maybe the nicest guy I met all day. And I I apologized to him for being such a vengeful vengeful racist. And and he said, hey, that's just the way they wrote the character. And I, I really appreciated that because I had to play a guy who's really flipped out. You know, there's... I guess we're either a nation of laws or we're not. But this guy was taking, the character was taking the law into his own hands. And because he felt personally humiliated, he was going to kill another human being. And of course, uh, Jonathan had to come and stop me because I was one of the heroes of the show. But the, I think we're supposed to believe that the gang members learn something from that moment too. And I, I just remember the gentleman who played the gang leader as a very intelligent and uh, accepting man. That's very nice to hear. Yeah, I'd rather find the best people than their faults, but that's just my mother speaking, you know? <laughs> Well, I'll tell you what, as the episode concludes, your character receives acknowledgement by receiving an award. I believe it was Handicapped Man of the Year, if I have that correct. That's the scene they shot at the Ambassador Hotel. At the Ambassador Hotel. And that was a very nice scene with a little speech at the end as well that kind of really stays with you as a viewer. That's where Bobby Kennedy was assassinated, too on the lawn of the Ambassador Hotel. Wow. I, I remember wow. thinking about that while we were waiting to go in. 
just uh, it added a little gravitas, a lot of gravitas to what I was thinking. And I, you know, it, it's hard to explain. I mean, it was a story. It, it wasn't masterpiece theater, but Michael knew how to tell a story that people liked. And people liked having conflict and then having it resolved and then having the good people rewarded. And if you think that's corny, so be it. But that's what he understood that part of the television audience. That's why he had 30 million people plus watching his shows every week. Well said, Robert. And isn't it something that all these years later, here I am, you know, remembering it just so fondly. And you know what, Robert? I recently rewatched the series, uh, not all in a few days, just so you know. It took me several months, but I, I just want to <laughs> stress that out to you. But I have to tell you, you know, I grew up in the 80s and I liked it back then, but I have an even, even greater appreciation today because his vision just stands out to me. He was saying so much. And in sometimes, Robert, it was like really way ahead of its time as far as primetime television goes. I think he's an underappreciated man. Oh, one of the officers of a disabled group that had a yearly gala uh, funding a disability group. And our, our guest host bailed out at the last minute. And so I called Michael's publicist. And this was the year Michael was, you know, fighting cancer and he didn't have long to live. And I asked him if he would consider being a last minute stand in host for our event. And without thinking, Michael said, of course. And he came and he was in tough shape even then, but he, he brought his energy, you know, dressed up casually, but he, he came in, I think we held it in the commissary at the universal studios and he was just the best host and he really uh, lit up the room and I'll, and a couple months afterwards he passed away. And I just, I just remember my last memory of Michael being this generous man who, uh, gave his own time to help somebody else out. And I will always, I'll always remember his generosity. Well, I'm very touched and moved by that story. It's, it is the perfect way to conclude. And, and Robert, I just have to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Uh, I sincerely really wanted to have you be a part of my Michael Landon tribute. So I have to say, I'm very grateful. Thank you so much. I have to say the same thing right back to you. As we say in the business, copy that. <laughs> uh, may I have your attention, please? Your, your, your attention? Um, it gives me uh, great pleasure to introduce Man of the Year, Wayne Seacrest. I want to thank you all for this very great honor. There's no question that throughout our lives, 
we're continually learning new lessons. We have to in order to grow as human beings. That's why we have to go out and, and teach, never stop teaching, making each other aware of the special needs and problems of handicapped people. How else can we learn unless we know? Give us a chance to get to work and we'll do the job. Give us a chance to be a part of the world. We'll make it a better world. I learned a lesson about myself last night. I learned that your manhood isn't measured by your legs. It's not your ability to stand tall and face a fight. Your manhood, your humanness, it's in the mind. It's in the heart. It's in your soul. Thank you all very much. Thank you. thank you goes out to my two guests today, Laura Park Lincoln and Robert David Hall. Both of them together helped make my tribute to Michael Landon extra meaningful and enjoyable. Thanks for listening. I'll see you on the next episode, friends and listeners. This is host Stephen Brittingham. Take care.